We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And it's hard to have dignity when you are the subject of police violence. Let's face it. And uh, it's pretty bad. Luckily, we have uh, cell phones recording this stuff. But my guess is it's been going on for a really, really long time and that uh, people are finally standing up to it and doing something about it. As we all know, in 2015, thousands of African-Americans and supporters took to the streets to speak out against the deaths of men and women of color at the hands of police officers. For the millions aware of Tamir Rice, Eric Garner and Michael Brown, there are just as many who haven't heard of Amadou Diallo, Ronaldo Cuevas and Prince Jones. Uh, the police killings of unarmed black men goes on. Our guest today, I'm very pleased to have with us Travis Morales, who uh, is on the steering committee of the Stop Mass Incarceration Network in New York City. And this is kind of interesting stuff. In 1978 and 79, Travis was one of the Moody Park Three defendants arrested with a bond of a half million dollars. He faced 140 years in a Texas prison on charges of felony riot in his hometown of Houston after the police beat Jose Campos Torres and then threw him in the Buffalo Bayo to drown. After a seven-year legal battle, the state of Texas gave up. In recent years, Travis Morales has led the struggle against mass incarceration and police terror, linking the struggles to each other, which is rather important. And, of course, he went to Ferguson, Missouri, in the midst of the rebellion and stayed in the streets with the defiant ones. He's also on the National Steering Committee for Rise Up October. Well, thanks very much for being with us, uh, Travis. What is Rise Up October, and in what ways is it unique and significant, given all the uh, trajectory that there's been for Black Lives Matter? Rise Up October was, it continues to be, three days here in New York where people came together from across the country, the families of 100 people who've been murdered by the police, Voices of conscience like Dr. Cornell West, Carl Dixie, who's one of the founders of the Stop Mass Incarceration Network, along with Dr. Cornell West, the two of whom who initiated the call for Rise Up October, along with students and others that came together in three days of actions to draw a line very sharply in society. Stop police terror. Which side are you on? Rise Up October. To draw this line in society and make it very clear there's no middle ground, there's no neutrality. Either you are on the side of the daily horror of the police murdering, and I'm using that 
word, you can what it is, murdering yes. black, Latino, Native American people and others, on, on, as I said, on a daily basis with impunity, rarely ever punished. It's a whole epidemic of a genocidal program of police killing people and mass incarceration. Are you on the side of that continuing, of the police continuing to get away with this murder? Are you going to stand with the people who are the victims and the targets of these murders and take action to stop it? So what took that? Which side are you on? Really, which side are you on? And we're going to play that at the end of the discussion, a new version of that old song, Which Side Are You On? So what took place at the Rise Up October events, uh, October 22nd and 23rd? Well, on the 22nd, it started, it kicked off in Times Square, which is real crossroads of the world, Yes, where people like uh, Eve Ensler, Quentin Tarantino, the families of people who've been killed by the, by the police, uh, Kwame Apia, Apaya, rather, who's the ethics writer for the New York Times, were reading the names of hundreds of people who've been killed by the police and bringing, bringing to people the human face, the humanity of, of people whose lives have been stolen. And this, this caught media attention and news reports, not only in the U.S., but all over the world. That's, that's how it kicked off. Um, and then later in the afternoon, there was a march in Brooklyn on the October 22nd National Day of Protest to stop police brutality, repression, and the criminalization of a generation, the 20th anniversary. Mm. And then on the 23rd, over 100 people went out to Rikers Island. And for those oh people God. who don't know, in your audience, Rikers Island is either the first or second largest prison in the country. Anywhere from twelve to 14,000 people are kept there every day incarcerated by the city of New York, most of whom, something like 80%, have never been convicted of a crime. It's really a debtor's prison because people can't make bail. It's all these revelations of torture, of brutality, of people dying inside this torture chamber. And people went out there under the slogan, shut down Rikers. Mm. And 16 people put themselves, put their bodies on the line in the streets. (laughs) And the place was... in and out was shut down for an hour. There were snarling police dogs. There were mm. lots of police. But people did this to make the point that this torture chamber must be shut down. And again, this reverberated across the country and throughout the world. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Travis Morales, who is with the uh, steering committee of uh, Stop Mass Incarceration Network and Rise Up October. And I, I wonder... Has police violence gotten worse, or is it just a new awareness of it by people who are not of color? And how much of this new awareness has to do with the availability of of cell phone videos? How much of a factor is this phenomenon on awareness of police violence? And I'm guessing that it's always been there, just now we're able to see it. Well, I I think we have to give credit where credit is due. The reason that, that there's a lot more public awareness about this right now, the fact that this is the police murdering black, brown, Latino, Native American, other people with impunity, that's because almost a year and a half ago, in August of last year, the young people of Ferguson, Missouri, stood up. They took to the streets night after night after night, demanding justice for Michael Brown, chanting, hands up, don't shoot. They went up in the face of tear gas, of rubber bullets, 
of armored personnel carriers, of AR-15 semi-automatic rifles that the police were carrying. I mean, if you saw the pictures, it, it looked like the army of occupation, yes. the U.S. Army occupation in Iraq. And that's what burst this onto the scene. I mean, Michael Brown would have just been another young, dead black man killed by the police. But instead, this whole question of the police murdering black and Latinos burst upon the scene. And, th- and that's really where the awareness comes from. And yes, there's lots of cell phone footage, videos. It's almost like every day we see a new yeah. video of someone who's been murdered by the police, whether they were choked to death by Eric, like Eric mm-hmm. Garner, mm-hmm. or the 12-year-old Tamir Rice in Cleveland who was shot down in a, yeah. in a city park. Yeah. And that's, that's really where the awareness is coming from. Yeah. One thing we didn't talk about, which sure, please. you can now if you'd like, is what actually happened on October 24th, which was the culmination of Friday's up on Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I mean, that was the day that, that as thousands of people came together in, in New York. We had people like um, Nicholas Hayward Sr., whose 13-year-old son, Nicholas Hayward Jr., was killed while playing in the stairwell of the Gowanus Housing Project in, uh, here in New York. I heard about um, that, yeah. Miss, uh, Miss Ba, whose son, Mohammed Ba, was killed by the police, as well as um, the um, Oscar, uh, Oscar Grant. Uh, his uncle, Uncle Bobby, came from the, the Bay Area to participate in the speaking. As I said, a hundred families of people have been killed by the police, but also the, the voices of conscience, like Quentin Tarantino, who mm-hmm. was up on stage, yeah. Eve Ensler, Gina Belafonte, huh. and other people. And it culminated in, in, this, in this rally and this march to the streets of New York, which, if people have been looking at the news, is, that continues to be, over two weeks later, continues to be a major news story because the police unions and the press, yes. like the, like the uh, New York Post, but not only them, went crazy because Quentin Tarantino, who only actually spoke for about 30 seconds, mm. Got up and said, "You know, I have to call the, the murdered, the murderers, the murderers, the murderers." Yes. And this just set off a whole, as we say in Spanish, chingazo. Um, no, we're, we're, threats have been made against him because he he dared to speak the truth, and he dared, as someone with a, a public platform, dared to stand with those who are the victims in, of this police brutality and murder. And there's a real effort. There's threats being made by the Fraternal Order of Police saying they have a surprise for him. Yes. That they're not only hurting him economically, but they have a sp- surprise that they could spring on him at any time. And let's be clear. That's terrorism. These are, people, these are people who carry guns and kill people. Yes, with impunity. With impunity. So it's not, it's not like the steelworkers union saying they're going to boycott something. These, these are people who kill people making threats against Quentin Tarantino. And people should take this very, very seriously. They are trying to silence him, and he's, he's said he's not going to be intimidated. And people have begun to step forward in support of him. People like Jamie Foxx, people like Michael Moore, people like Joyce Carol Oates. Hmm. Yeah. And, and people it, should check out the hashtag, Side with Quentin. Side with Quentin. And Quentin Tarantino, refresh my memory, I know he's uh, produced some movies, and he's got a new one coming up, I believe, at, at the end of the year. Yes, The, hate, the Hateful Eight which the uh, police unions are saying they're, they're calling for a boycott, and it's in this context they're saying they're going to have a surprise for him. Hmm. 
absolutely amazing. I mean, you talk about a war on terror. Well, look at this is terrorism. Let's face it. You know, the police threatening Quentin Tarantino uh, and, you know, all these families that spoke out there. Uh, you know, it's and, and Rikers. I mean, just to say the name Rikers is that's terrorist. To, I mean, just to think about being sent there. It's 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 you know exactly. You can't have any greater definition of of, of terrorism. Um, and w- what about the uh, counter attack by? And I, I do think it's interesting uh, about Quentin Tarantino. America has this fascination with celebrities. Somehow celebrities make things legitimate. I don't really understand that. And now we got uh, celebrities running for president and people taking them seriously. It's bizarre to me. But uh, Quentin Tarantino spoke, as you said, for 30 seconds. And and his risk to himself is having a big influence on the discussion, which I would say is extremely important. So do tell us about the uh, subsequent counterattack by the right wing. Uh, this is obviously the police union, which uh, you know wants to be able to continue doing what they've always been doing without being questioned about it. And they must be kind of scared of uh, being called on the carpet about that. Is there any kind of counterattack by people who might call themselves conservatives, right wingers? Well, the the blogosphere has been, the internet have been going crazy, but not just there on Fox News. Ah, um, I missed it. <laughs> they, they they went crazy. The New York Post went crazy. William Bratton, the police commissioner here in New York, went crazy and attacked Quentin Tarantino. And again, I, I think the point has to be made that it's a very good thing. It's a wonderful thing, and it needs to happen a lot more when people of conscience, when prominent people like Quentin Tarantino, people like Dr. Cornell West, yes, when they stand with the people who are the targets of this oppression, when they stand with the people who are the targets of this police brutality and murder, it, it's, it's an important part of opening up this whole, you know, cracking open this whole question and making it much more of, of something that has to be discussed and debated. And it also gives backing and, and gives support. I mean, over 20 of the family members of people killed by the police wrote very moving statements about Quentin Tarantino coming to, to stand with them, speaking out against these police murders, marching with them. And it's a big part of giving people on the bottom backing and letting people know that they're not alone, that there is this... It's part of making the point that it doesn't have to be this way, that we could actually bring people together to stop this. Mm. And that's, that's part of why there's this right-wing fascist, yes. I don't call it that, oh, yeah. the police, it fits. backlash attacking Quentin Tarantino, because they don't want people like him speaking up. I mean, he was on the Bill Maher show. Bill Maher was giving him backing. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said earlier, Michael Moore, Joyce Carol Oates, when you begin to have this kind of percolation in society becomes a major question and people are challenged which side are you on what are you going to do to what are you going to do to stop this and so this is very important that that in the context of drawing this line sharply in society stop police terror which side are you on rise up that people have the back of, of Quentin Tarantino oh absolutely and uh the name of the movie, I want to make sure to go see it and urge people to see it. The Hateful Eight, is that what it's called? Yes, The Hateful Eight. The trailer The trailer is out. People can go online and watch it. Well, and I can imagine, you know, the, the perhaps hundreds, who knows how many uh, of police who have absolutely gotten away with murder. 
they must be scared. They must be frightened because to face the reality that, yes, they got away with murder and that they have may eventually have to not only stop doing that, but be, you know, take responsibility for that. So they're probably quite frightened. And, you know, when people are frightened and have a lot of guns, whoa, <laughs> that's rather scary. And, you know, I, I've heard it said that politics and protest are both necessary but neither is sufficient on its own. So there's, there's protest. We talk about protest here. What about the, the politics of it? I mean, we have a presidential election in full gear right now, and presidential candidate Bernie Sanders uh, became a, a favorite uh, by acknowledging Black Lives Matter. Do you think the movement has political allies within the 2016 presidential contenders on either or both sides? Absolutely not. I mean, Frederick Douglass made a point, power concedes nothing without a demand. And to the extent that, that these politicians have, have exhibited any kind of, of half-hearted sympathy for the fact that people are being murdered, it's all, to do, it's all to bring people back into the killing confines of this system and getting people to think that they're going to do something about it. I mean, Recently, and this this was ironic, on October 22nd, the National Day of Protest to Stop Police Brutality, Repression, and the Criminalization of a Generation, President Obama chose that day to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and how maybe they, maybe they had a point. And here's the president who just a few months earlier was calling the young people of, of Baltimore thugs mm-hmm. because they dared to stand up and rise up after the, the murder of, of Freddie Gray. Yes. And again, it gets back to the only reason that any of these politicians have addressed this question, and the only reason it's, it's a question in, throughout this country is because people have stood up over the last year, you know, beginning in, in, in Ferguson, the youth that stood yeah. up there, and, and spread. I mean, your listeners are probably familiar and been watching the news out of the University of Missouri, yes, where the students there, thousands of students, forced the resignation of the president, yes. of the chancellor, because there's been a whole atmosphere of students being called the N-word, yes. of fecal matter being used to paint, to put swastikas on, on walls. And they did where, very little. They, they, and they did very little in the face of it, and the football team went on strike. The, the black football yes. players went on strike. You know, there's things are bubbling at Yale. Tell me where, about that, yeah. Well, there was, you know, black, where on Halloween costumes, there were some of these fraternities, sororities, whatever, did, um, dressed up in blackface and, and making derog- making fun of black people, mocking them. And, there, you know, this, wow. this is the kind of atmosphere that exists in this country. Because, look, we, we do live in a white supremacist society yeah. founded on slavery and genocide of Native Americans. And it's continuing to this day. And, yes, they're not lynching people like they did back in the day. But they're... The police are killing people yes. much more than they did back in the day. And where black people, Latinos, and others have to face this, not just the racism, but the brutality, the murder. And people have to confront the question of which side are they on. I mean, this, this racism, it's, it's all throughout the society. And as, as people go forward in the struggle, they have to ask, what kind of a system breeds, breeds supports, and defends the kind of racism that black students at Missouri, as well as students at every college like Yale, have to face. And they have to face these police 
murdering them and getting away with it and the mass incarceration of black and Latino people. And as Bob Dylan said a while ago, money doesn't talk, it swears. And when you look at, at, at the, uh, you know, the power, the, the Montgomery bus strike back in, what, 1953, it was, it was hurting the Montgomery uh, city financially in terms of the football players going on strike. You know, football brings in a lot of money. Uh, so, you know, I wonder if there's some kind of, you know, way to to make turn this into, you know, it's going to cost the system money if they don't correct it. You know, the 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 bus boycott was very effective, and and you mm-hmm. know, people listen to uh, the power of money. What do you think? Uh, how, I wonder how the 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 sentiment that you're expressing about that can be translated. You know, marching on the street is a good thing. I think it clearly makes a message. The media picks up on it. I wonder uh, if it can. You know how powerful it can become. Well, that you know, at times that does play a role. But I think we have to look at we have to really hit the system where it hurts, and and where it hurts is when large masses of people, the hundreds, the thousands, the yeah. tens of thousands, hundred thousands, ultimately millions of people, aren't going along with business as usual, or out in the yes. streets, or disrupting business as usual, yes. or shutting things down. Yes. like they began to do at the University of Missouri, which is why the, the I believe the black football players began that strike is because of what was developing on the campus. Because what really hits this system where it hurts is when people begin to lose their faith in the system. When they begin to think that what this system is doing, it's violence, it's mass incarceration, it's racism, it's oppression of people, is is no longer legitimate and begin to, to lose faith and begin to question, you know, right. do we, should we really have to, to live this way? And I, I have to say very clearly, that in looking at what happened in, in Ferguson, what's happening at the University of Missouri, these, these wars for empire, this whole mm-hmm. rape culture in this country, the, the brutality against LGBT people, the destruction of the environment, we, do, we need a whole different system, one in which the oppression of black people and other oppressed nationalities as well as all the other outrages of this system, are eliminated. And this, this is going to require an actual revolution, nothing less. And this revolution is real, and it's possible, and it's not going to be easy. And the way out of this madness is not obvious. But truly getting free after you know, so many centuries and centuries of oppression and horror requires science and understanding. Absolutely. And I will ask, you know, call on people to really check out the leadership of Bob Avakian, the leader of the Revolutionary Communist Party, who's brought forth the science of how we could actually get to a whole better world. Go online to revcom.us, revcom.us, and get with this revolution and, and deeply check out this work of Bob Avakian because the world is a horror, it's a nightmare, but it doesn't have to be this way. It- this battle right now to stop the police terror of our communities, to stop mass incarceration, to stop the rampant racism. All of these battles are actually part of preparing the ground to get to the day when millions of people can make a revolution in this country. As we say, fight the power and transform the people for revolution. It's, it's been going on for a long time, and it has worked, and people, long. unfortunately, I think, have, have come to believe that we are powerless, and we are anything but powerless. The acceptance of a sense of powerlessness has been really frustrating. I mean, look, we went on the streets in you know, the civil rights movement and, and ending the war in Vietnam. It worked. It worked to, as you said, address yeah. the, the assumed legitimacy when you know, it's, people are out in the streets at questions the legitimacy 
legitimacy of this continued uh, system of mass incarceration and, and police right. murder. How, how effective, you know, some people may say that, well, we've needed mass incarceration to cut down on violent crime. How effective has it been, do you think? Well, the, the point of, of mass incarceration was it was never about crime. It was about coming off the 60s, the fact that black people had risen up and there was a, a, move, a revolutionary movement among black people and this country was shaken to its foundations and there was a very conscious policy. I mean, Nixon himself articulated, I'm going to botch the, the quotation, but it was in the, the memoirs of H.R. Um, Halderman, uh-huh. that we all know what the problem is. It's the blacks. We just have to devise a way where it's, where it's not obvious. Sort of butchering the quotation, but wow, yeah, there there was a whole strategy of of flooding the ghettos and the barrios with drugs, of catching people up in the mass and mass incarceration at a time when all the jobs had been were being shipped out of the country, capital chasing the the highest rates of profit and and looking for new people to be able to exploit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we this led to the development of, of a whole strategic policy of 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 mass incarceration, and this is this is a, a big part of the of the battle right now. Yes. The mass incarceration, stopping the mass incarceration, the police killing of people, and we're at a crossroads. We're at a crossroads right now, where in 1857 the Dred Scott decision was a black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect. Well, now it's in the in the 21st century a black person has no life that a police officer is bound to respect. And that's what's being codified. All the police have to do now is say they feared for their life. I mean, here you have in Ohio, 12-year-old Tamir Rice, on November 22nd, the anniversary. Everybody has probably seen the video. The police pull up. He's 12 years old. He has a toy gun in a park by himself. And within 1.7 seconds, the police have shot him. Absolutely, claiming they feared they were afraid, they feared for their life, and this is this is this is a huge battle right now. The police cannot get away with walking away from the murder of Tamir Rice. We have a very simple, simple demand: indict, convict, send the killer cops to jail. As we chant in the streets, the whole damn system is guilty as hell. But that's a very simple demand: put these cops away. And there's a on November 22nd, people yes. are being called out in the streets across this country to demand justice for for um, Tamir yes. Rice, to demand indict, convict, and send these killer cops to jail, and not let them get away with furthering, setting into motion, and, and codifying the police just saying, I feared for my life. Because when I was young, many years ago, mm-hmm. my hometown of Houston, there was a throwdown gun where the police would kill somebody and then plant a gun. Hmm. And then this got exposed. Well, they're not, even go- they're not even bothering to plant guns. They're just saying, I feared for my life. Right. And you can see video after video oh, yeah. after video, and this must stop. It absolutely People must People need stop. to come out. And I do think most Americans, a lot of you know, white Americans, have been not fully aware of this. And they don't want this to happen. And that's where the legitimacy exactly. question comes in to to increase public awareness of it and make it stop. It's got to stop. Thank you so much for being with us, Travis Morales. Let me give two two more websites. Okay. One is go to for reports, pictures, statements of what happened with Rise Up October. Go to riseupoctober.org. 
That's riseupoctober.org. And for all of these questions of mass incarceration, the police killing people, and the need to stop this new Jim Crow, this genocidal program, go to stopmassincarceration.net. That's stopmassincarceration.net. And again, check out revcom.us, revcom.us. And thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, thank you. Which side are you on? Indeed. We'll be back in a couple minutes. side are you on? Well, there's another big issue. There's always big issues, let's face it, uh, that uh, is probably less in the news that, and certainly less understood than uh, what we were just talking about in the first half hour, police uh, getting away with murder. This is something that could affect our very democracy and probably will affect our very democracy itself. I'm not exaggerating at all. Pretty much by now, everyone has heard of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But the content of the proposed Trade Act has been intentionally kept secret, keeping secrets from the American people. Now, why would anybody do that? President Obama has consistently pushed for passage of the Trans-Pacific Partnership by fast track if necessary, and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton strongly endorsed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but just recently it was... uh, Uh, convenient for candidate Hillary Clinton to uh, come out in opposition. The full text of the final version of the proposed trade agreement was just unveiled in early November, and by all accounts, it's worse than we thought. Corporate interests are satisfied at the expense of public interest. Here to shed light on what has been Kept from the American public, our guest today, Melinda St. Louis, with the uh, she is international campaigns director with Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Thanks for being with us, Melinda. Thanks for having me. And uh, she monitors U.S. trade negotiations at the World Trade Organization, as well as regional and bilateral trade and investment talks, including the TPP and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership (TTIP) and coordinates with civil society partners around the globe to promote the public interest in the context of international commercial and investment agreements. Pretty radical, having it work for the common good. How does the Trans-Pacific, there's a lot of specifics to go over here, how does the TPP promote job offshoring and serve to push down American wages? Well, unfortunately, what we've seen now that the TPP text has been made public, and again, this is after more than six years of closed-door negotiations, 
600 corporate advisors who had access to the text while the public was locked out. Now, now we can see what's in it, and as you mentioned, it's worse than we thought. And what we've seen is that it expands the model of the what we've first uh, experienced under the North America Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, um, that incentivizes companies to offshore American jobs. And it does that through you know, a whole host of, of provisions, but one specifically is around um, investment. And it, it empowers foreign corporations to attack local laws if they, um, for environmental or public health laws or really any law or, or, or order, uh, executive order, that can impact the, the future profits of, of a corporation. And so it takes away the risk of, for U.S. corporations to go to um, jurisdictions that perhaps are more risky. Um, they can earn more uh, by potentially by exploiting the low labor costs, um, for example, in Vietnam, one of the TPP countries where there are um, workers earn 65 cents an hour. Mm. U.S. workers are now, you know, kind of in in competition with those workers. But then, in addition, there are these there there are these benefits that foreign corporations can get in those countries. They can get taxpayer compensation, millions or billions of dollars, if there's a law that passed that affects their profit making. So there's there's this incentive. To, to move these jobs offshore, and what we're left with in the United States is then, and we've experienced this already, is um, a decimation of the manufacturing base um, in the United States, and that's led to an overall depression of wages. It's not just the people who lose those jobs, but then everyone else is competing for the service sector jobs. Those are tend to be ones that are less... Uh, yeah. It undermines the power of collective bargaining for unions. Then, if there's always a threat that the that companies can move overseas, and so um, it has led to an increase in income inequality in the United States. And we only, unfortunately, instead of learning the lessons of the past, what we've seen in the CPP is simply an expansion of this model. And now, um, to countries with even lower wage jurisdictions like Vietnam, as I mentioned. I find it so fascinating. And to, and to just repeat a little bit, I know that uh, here in New Hampshire, there was, uh, oh, a fight a few years ago about uh, a multinational corporation coming in and sucking out all the water, good, clean, you know, marketable water. And the town managed to have some laws in the town to stop it. But under it sounds to me like I, mean, I don't know if water specifically large water withdrawals might be covered, but if a company came into a town and there were local objections to it, local or even state laws passed that might I underscore might affect the profits of the multinational corporation, the local and state laws are trumped. Is that right? Well, it it is it is it is a major threat. In fact, this isn't even hypothetical. Um, for example, in Canada, just recently there was a ruling um, against uh, um, the Canadian government. Uh, there was um, a quarry project that was being undertaken, and um, and there was a local environmental impact assessment and a community impact assessment of what the impact of this quarry would be for the community. Sure. And after going through the entire impact assessment, the community decided that the pro- the project was dangerous and should not move forward. However, under NAFTA, a U.S. company mm-hmm. that was hoping to um, to build that quarry launched 
one of these investor state lawsuits, and it sounds crazy, but it's not even in the courts. It's outside of the courts in a private tribunal made of three private lawyers who decided whether the extreme investor rights under NAFTA were violated by this community impact assessment. And they decided that, yes, indeed, they were, and ordered the Canadians to pay millions of dollars in compensation to this company. And it, this was something that would affect every company. It was not discrimination. It, a Canadian company or a U.S. company... A, Similarly, would have to wouldn't have been able to move forward, but because it was a foreign corporation, they had access to this um, to this tribunal, and that is a huge danger in the United States. So far, we have dodged a bullet, but that's because we have had these agreements with with largely with developing countries where there weren't very many uh, foreign corporations from those countries already operating here. But with the TPP, this is with Japan, it's with Australia, it's going to be open uh, for docking for other countries in the future, like China, etc. And so we're opening up the liability, and you're right, they, go, they can go after local and state uh, policies as well as federal policies. Absolutely amazing. I mean, you talk about threats to our democracy. This is a very serious threat to our very democracy itself. And I, you know, I wonder if uh, once it's gone, people might uh, realize, oh, my goodness, we had democracy. What a great thing that was. And it has to be. It has to be fought. And all along the way, as has, has been mentioned, it's been very, very secret. This whole thing has been secret. And then the president, who was a big backer of it, much as I like Obama, he was really wrong on this, in my opinion. He wanted fast-track authority, so it couldn't be amended. It just had to go up or down. So what of this secrecy and the fast-track thing? What is the status of that now? Why was it like that? I think we know because it was so bad. And and what's the status of fast-track now? Yes, well, it's very unfortunate that the Obama administration decided to conduct the negotiations um, under the cloak of such secrecy. And in fact, there have been calls for years um, to make it public, in fact, even under the Bush administration, an agreement, um, a negotiation that was happening in the early 2000s was posted on the web on, on the U.S. government website before it was concluded, um, because of the the need for public input and scrutiny. The Obama administration did not do that. They waited until they were finished, and then they waited an initial an additional five weeks after they were concluded while they were going around selling the benefits of the agreement before people could see anything that was in it. Um, and, and, and as you mentioned, Fast Track, unfortunately, it was a huge fight in the U.S. Congress this past summer, but due to legislative maneuvering, they managed to overcome the strong opposition in Congress. Almost all the Democrats voted against it in the right. House. There was a large block of Republicans that didn't want it either, but the Republican leadership in the White House teamed up with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to, to try to you know, maneuver this through. It passed very narrowly, so now, unfortunately, Congress is in the position, even though they have the constitutional authority over our trade policy, yes. they've handcuffed themselves. They cannot amend it. This is um, it will be brought, it's the only law that would be a bill that's actually written by the administration, not by Congress. They will write a bill that will implement, that will change all the laws of the United States to be in conformity with the agreement. It's brought to the Congress and they have to vote yes or no. And this, you know, there's been talk before about massive pieces of legislation that's hard for people to read. Right. We had an intern count um, the number of pages of what has been um, now made public. It's over 6,000 pages ah. 
the TPP currently, um, and all of the side agreements and side letters, um, and and it and it's very important for people to understand it's being sold as a trade agreement. It's not that much about trade. There are some traditional trade issues in it, but it goes. Far beyond that, it goes. It addresses our, the safety of our food, the peace yes. of our medicines, that you know, whether we can have a good job. It, you know, it it um, it's not it's good with um, <laughs> you know notorious human rights abusers, and yet, yet it doesn't address those issues. And so, you know, I think it's it's quite outrageous that this will have to be um, that it cannot be amended. And so, therefore, unfortunately, we're going to have to mobilize. Of the American public, and they need to talk to their members of Congress in the yes. coming months, and they need to say no to this agreement. And I thought it was fascinating how uh, there was a situation in which uh, some members of Congress, senators, and in the House voted against fast track, but then so they can say to their constituents, "Ah, I voted against it." But then later on, as you mentioned, through uh, legislative maneuvering they actually voted for it so they can be on both sides and, and try to slither around it. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Alive, with your help, that is. Our guest is Melinda St. Louis. We're talking about the uh, new language just discovered of the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. And there are a lot of chapters. You, you mentioned uh, the environment chapter. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. And let me, maybe we can just go through the various chapters. Well, sure. So the environment chapter is one that the administration is trying to tout, is saying that this is very progressive and they, they're claiming many things um, about how it protects the environment. Unfortunately, um, the environmental organizations, such as the Sierra Club, Defenders of Wildlife, um, 350.org, down the line, have read this, have analyzed it, and said, unfortunately, no. This, this environment chapter uh, pays lip service to important conservation goals, um, it is enforceable, as they claim, but the language uh, is very weak and vague um, on what the actual obligations are around the environment. If you compare that, for example, to the intellectual property chapter, they are very binding and very specific. In fact, they require criminal penalties for small-scale uh, copyright violations, whereas when it comes to the environment, there are these vague and, and non and, and not very uh, strict or binding standards. And so you can see kind of really where the priority is. Um, also, environmental organizations have noted that the words climate change do not appear at all in the environment chapter, even though the TPP would potentially ex expose, uh, exacerbate uh, climate change mm. because of the increase in shipping and, and the, the forced uh, uh, exports of liquid natural gas that would be automatically approved under TPP that would encourage more fracking and more um, shipping of liquid natural gas to Japan and other countries where the prices are high. And so, it, so while it's doing that on one hand and it's empowering polluters to be able to sue um, outside of our courts for our um, environmental laws and legislation, it has this environmental chapter that's quite weak and vague. Gosh, it's, it's so... You know, through the looking glass stuff, it's just so hard to believe, but it is real. And and I'm reminded of all those members of Congress who said, oh, you couldn't read the 1,200 pages of the uh, Affordable Care Act, you know, bad, bad, bad. And this is 6,000 pages, and there's no talk about nobody being able to read it. Going from the environment, food safety is affected in the sanitary and phytosanitary chapter. Tell us about that, please. 
Yes, well, for anyone who is concerned about making sure that the food that you feed your family is safe, they should be very concerned about the TPP. Um, the, the TPP has, um, uh, as I mentioned, uh, some of the countries that are involved, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, some Asian countries that um, have been exporting uh, seafood, shrimp, and other seafood to the United States. It is well known that many of these uh, farm fish farming um, places in in these countries actually use human feces as food for the um, for the uh, farm raised shrimp, and they uh, currently there's only one percent of the imports that are inspected at our border uh, for for whether they're safe. And this would not increase inspections, but it would flood the United States with more imports without more inspections. And under, as you mentioned, this chapter that sounds very wonky, um, sanitary and phytosanitary standards, it, it has new provisions that allow corp- companies, if, if their shipment is stopped at the border beca- um, because of um, inspections, they have this new rapid response mechanism that they can directly challenge and get their shipment through um, in a uh, even if it's being stopped because of safety standards. And um, and it would require uh, the United States to recognize uh, the safety of, of food from some of these countries where where they have to recognize the quote-unquote equivalence. And, um, and it's a huge concern. And again, this isn't just the countries that are part of it now, but um, this agreement is open to other countries to join in the future, such as China. Uh, everyone knows there's serious concerns around uh, food safety, toys safety, and, and others from, uh, from, from many of these countries. And yes. instead of, instead of um, making sure the public is protected, the TPP, as I mentioned, this is a wish list of corporations that negotiated it. You know, they were involved when the public was locked out, and so the rules benefit the corporations that, that find our safeguards um, you know, barriers to trade are pesky or annoying, and um, and and unfortunately, I think it's 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 going to be uh, if if it goes through, it, goes it, through. it will be a huge danger, and that's why members, that's why Congress has to reject it. They do. And before we get to what people can do about Congress, I, there's a few other things like uh, access to. There have been improvements to uh, access to affordable medicine. How that uh, congressional Democrats uh, made sure happened uh, under George W. Bush in, in 2007. So I understand this pack rolls back improvements on access to affordable medicines. People like to have good medicines and have it affordable. Tell us about that. That is true. Unfortunately, Big Pharma, and that's brand name pharmaceutical companies, were very much a part of this negotiation um, in terms of putting their wish list out there, U.S. Trade Representative's Office carrying the water of Big Pharma throughout the, these years of closed-door negotiations. We had seen leaks um, over the years. Um, WikiLeaks actually published some of the chapter, the intellectual property chapter. And so what, what Pharma was trying to do was expand its monopolies. And when you expand monopolies, what that means is it blocks generic competition for longer, which means that um, these companies can basically charge whatever they want uh, for drugs and, and, and for life-saving um, medicines for cancer and others, for example. I mean, many of these drugs can cost $100,000 a year for one patient. Right. And, um, and, and so that's a huge drain 
obviously on um, on taxpayers uh, for when there is a national health care system in some countries. And obviously, for many people, that means they simply don't have access if they don't have insurance and um, to the to these drugs. And and um, there was a big fight over this. Fortunately, for years, some of the other countries and was a shame. In my view, it's shameful that the U.S. Trade Representative was pushing so hard to expand these monopolies, um, and they managed to the pharma pharmaceutical industries got a lot in the TPP. They didn't get every single thing they wanted, so now they're complaining mm-hmm. um, that they didn't get twelve years of market exclusivities for these cancer drugs, and and it, now it's five to eight years. But it's still going to be a death sentence for people in other countries, particularly in poor countries like Vietnam, that couldn't begin to afford a hundred thousand uh, dollars for for a life saving cancer drug, and it's going to be a huge drain on our health care system. Um, and and they um, and and we saw you know we saw it every step of the way. And I mentioned these cancer drugs because that was one of the most um, controversial. But across the board, there were um, different, very technical ways that they managed to expand their monopolies beyond what they had before. And as you mentioned, this was a rollback of some of the improvements that were made, even during the Bush administration, um, on some of our past trade agreements. And so for developing countries, for poor countries, um, now they there used to be a standard where they had they didn't have to do some of these really extreme monopolies because of because what it meant for access to medicines under TPP, they have these short transition periods where they will have to um, to do that, and and that's you know, and it's 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 shameful because people will die uh, because of lack of access to medicines under TPP, and that's why Doctors Without Borders, for example, which is a humanitarian organization that uh, provides you know provides health care to people um, in disaster zones, they have come out. Strongly against these provisions because mm. they see this as literally a death sentence for many of the people that they treat around the world. Absolutely amazing. It seems you know, it's it's so bad, it's so harmful in so many ways, and you know historically, we've we've liked the idea of having a republican form of government of the people, and it seems like democracy is just. You know, it's it's sort of in the way of these big multinational corporations who want to call the shots. And now this, if it passes, uh, will just be calling the shots and the uh, inconvenience of democracy won't be a factor at all. Now, as, as was said at the beginning of the discussion, Hillary Clinton was one of the Trans-Pacific Partnership's biggest boosters until just recently. What about the other candidates? There are a lot of people running for president right now. Have they... Any of them spoken about this? Yes, well, 10 presidential candidates uh, have come out very critical of the TPP, um, including all of the front runners on the Democratic slate, um, Hillary Clinton being the most recent, Bernie Sanders has been strongly opposed, uh, Martin O'Malley as well. Um, uh, Donald Trump uh, has spoken very critically and has called the TPP a insane, a disaster. Um, the um, Mike Huckabee has uh, come out strongly opposed. So has um, Ben Carson. Uh, so you, it, it is. It's one of those issues really? that unites Democrats and Republicans um, because that's that's where the American public is when they, un, you know, they, you know, they may support the idea of trade, but they know in their hearts and their bones what this means because we have lived through twenty years 
of this failed trade policy that has shuttered manufacturing plants around this country that has um, that has not benefited the middle class and um, and and therefore this is not this is really the people versus the elites. This is not left mm. versus right, and so you actually see that um, in um, in the opposition to the TPP. Yeah, it's rare when you don't have Democrats on one side and Republicans on the other. And I, I wonder how this new version that finally came out, you know, they kept it secret as long as they could, how this new version may affect support from some members of Congress who, in the final analysis, did support the fast track. How do you how do you think it's going to fare in Congress now? Well, it, it's going to be a major fight, and its fate is uncertain at best. I mean, what's it, it is um, as I mentioned, fast track passed by the narrowest of of uh, margins, only after a lot of legislative maneuvering. And many of those who did vote for it said, well, they were going to reserve judgment um, for what was in the TPP, that this was just a procedural vote, and that, you know, they were... And, um, and, and I think many of the... Dem- you know, there were just a few ha- uh, Democrats, uh, 28 Democrats who voted for it. Most of them said that they needed to see strong environmental and labor protections. Well, of course, the administration saying that, but now we can see what's in it, and we can see the, how, how weak, in many ways, the, the labor and environmental provisions actually are. And so that's going, and, and we can see, and many of the Democrats who are concerned about access to medicines can see how Big Pharma managed to, to expand its monopolies and actually roll back what some of the gains were that they received in the past administration um, and under these trade agreements. And, and then on the other side, actually, major supporters of TPP, um, such as Orrin Hatch uh, from the Senate, who pushed um, uh, Fast Track through, he is very upset on the other side because he doesn't think the pharmaceutical uh, provisions are strong enough. Yeah. And, um, and so you see... Um, you see some Republicans are very strong pro-free trade um, people also concerned about it. Those, uh, you know, the opposition among progressives is united against this. All trade unions, almost all um, uh, environmental organizations, consumer groups, faith groups, LGBT groups, women's groups, um, retirees have been united in opposition to this. So it's in, and, and the fact that it will be coming up in an election year mm. then means that these um, members of Congress will be even more accountable to their electorate. And I think it will be very difficult for them to support this. Well, it calls for people understanding it, you know, getting a hold of it, looking into it and putting pressure on their elected officials. And before we get to how people can do that, I just want to, one of the other things I didn't want to leave this out, you know, people are concerned about the, uh, uh, the, the financial crash of 2008, 2009. We put in some regulations uh, to control that kind of speculative bubble and financial crash. Uh, understand TPP would even exacerbate this problem. Oh, yes, it, it, it is quite worrying. Wall Street was all over TPP, you know, in these backdoor uh, negotiations. And we, um, one of the shocking things we saw that, you know, these private tribunals that we were talking about earlier, for the first time, one of the, one of the provisions under these agreements that has been most successful in getting foreign companies uh, millions or billions of dollars in taxpayer compensation has been ex- now expanded and extended to financial firms who want to use it uh, for to challenge financial regulation, which is uh, outrageous. This was actually not included in past agreements, and now it's in this one. Um, and that's just one example that, that – um, 
that there are in there's a whole chapter around financial services and um, and some very common sense tools that are used to maintain financial stability are not allowed um, whether they're de- discriminatory or not they're not allowed and they can be challenged um, in these um, outside of our courts I just got to ask President Obama's a smart guy how why I don't get it. Why is he supporting this so much? Is, is it like a payoff, do you think? That, that is the million-dollar question. <laughs> it's been a huge uh, disappointment among uh, the you know, organizations sure. that were very supportive. And MoveOn.org is absolutely opposed to, um, you know, to the TPP, the large online organizations. But basically, the entire base of you know, trade unions, environmental organizations have been opposed to this. And, you know, I think there is this... There, there's this misnomer out there about free trade, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that you know we need to expand free trade, and we need to tie ourselves to Asia. And but the rules actually matter, and the process by which you negotiate things, these things actually matters because mm-hmm. then you see that actually this has been a way to legislate outside of our uh, out of our democracy as you mm, mentioned mm. and and undermine our sovereignty it's a it's a terrible legacy for president obama and it's a, and it's very disappointing that um that that he's been pushing it okay so what can people do well people need to talk to their members of congress early and often this is going to be so the the um president made uh, gave notice to Congress of his intent to sign it just a couple of days ago. So that starts a 90-day clock. After 90 days, uh, the, the president can submit uh, implementing legislation to the Congress. So that puts us right smack dab in the middle of you know the primary season, early March, uh, at, when it could be taken up. So what we need to do is make this thing as toxic as possible. So we need... So people need to share their, you can go to Global Trade Watch on Facebook uh, or Expose the TPP on Facebook. We have ExposeTheTPP.org. There are ways you can make sure everyone you know knows about the TPP first. And then contact your member of Congress and tell them that they must vote no and that you will hold them accountable on Election Day uh, for how they choose. And, and they should come out early and they should say they will not vote for the TPP. And how do you really feel? <laughs> hey, thank you so much for being with us. Fascinating, scary. Melinda St. Louis, International Campaigns Director with Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Thank you so much for being with us. We're trying to keep democracy alive. Thanks so much. Thank you. Sit on the scene, yeah. Giving up.